welcome back to Pertaining to People, a podcast about all things anthropology and archaeology. We are your hosts, Jill, Lulu, and Kelsey. And before we get into our episode for today, we wanted to address a couple things that we've not necessarily noticed over the past couple months. It's been busy. One thing that I wanted to say is that in episode 11, I kept saying Maori, and I have since learned that it's Mari is the correct pronunciation. Also can't pronounce pronunciation, so that's cool. Um, (laughs) (laughs) My dad also pointed out to me that we keep using, or I keep using BC, and we should, like, standardize it and use BCE instead. Fair. That's a good point, Dad. Thank you. So we'll try to do that in the future. (laughs) Take that on moving forward. Yeah. And then we got a couple reviews that we wanted to address, because that's so nice. And we appreciate that people are commenting and telling us the things that they like or also dislike, which we haven't heard yet. But please tell us, because we like to get better. Yeah. So far, biggest critiques have been from Jillian's dad. So any (laughs) other additional outside feedback would be greatly appreciated. Yes. So one is from my uncle also. (laughs) Keeping it in the family. (laughs) Oh, boy. So yeah, anyone who's not Jillian's... My Uncle or dad. <laughs> Immediate family could uh, hit us up. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But so one review on Apple Podcasts is from my uncle, and it says, possibly the best podcast ever hosted by a niece or nephew of mine, which is obviously biased because <laughs> none of my cousins have podcasts. <laughs> That's such a, like, underhanded specific compliment. <laughs> I know. Not even like, yeah, top 10 he's heard by women he's related to, like not even just a specific niece or nephew of mine. I love it. It's it's very, thanks, thanks, Uncle Brent. Thank you. (laughs) Um, So another one by Veg Life is, uh, excellent podcast. I love how the hosts offer lots of information, but in a digestible way. Keep them coming. Thanks. That's very nice. You're welcome. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. That's, you know. That's so kind. If we're ever not that digestible or accessible, let us know. Let us know. I think it's just nice to know people are listening. Like, it really is. We're just is. kind of talking to ourselves, so. <laughs> just in this little vacuum, Zoom vacuum that we're in. A little bit of interaction. This is fun. Yeah. Never get to hear from the audience. <laughs> yeah. And so then the last one that I see, I also am not that good at technology, but the last one that I see on Apple Podcasts is from another one from Kidding Mama, who gave us a review like earlier on that we talked about. But it says, episode 11 is particularly interesting and provides good career advice for anyone starting out and not just in archaeology. Thank you very much. Oh, nice. Very I nice. love that. I think episode 11 was so... one of my favorite we'd done, so yeah, it's good. I'm glad it's so accessible across so many disciplines and for so many people. Yeah, that makes it's me wonderful. very happy. Yeah, me too. I also am very much losing track of which episode is which, because I think we also did the episode three, like A and B mm-hmm. and C. And so I think we have like, right. I think this is maybe our 18th episode, but number 15 I get very confused. But anyway, thank you everyone who has left reviews. Thank you everyone who's listening. It's nice to know we're not just here talking to ourselves. (laughs) Well, we still kind of are, but yeah, yeah. (laughs) we still appreciate some interaction and acknowledgement. It's lovely. Yeah, and feel free to always, you know, send us emails or reviews or DMs, whatever. Let us know. And also, (laughs) 
No, I can't remember who I was telling earlier on that they should give us money, sponsor us, do that if you want. Oh, that would be great. Bidet companies. Yeah, it was a bidet company. <laughs> <laughs> we still yes. haven't received. We, we just need to talk about it more. Bidets. Where's our sponsorship? We love bidets. Talk we about, need to target bidets. Yeah, maybe we need listen. to target a specific company by name. And get their picture on our logo or something, you know? Really just sell out for this. I think it's worthwhile. (laughs) Sell ourselves out. It's great. (laughs) Yeah. But maybe we can talk about that today because hygiene is part of this. So, you know. Oh, we haven't actually mentioned what we're talking about today. No, we haven't. Oh, but first, I'm back on my joke train. Okay. So I I have another joke. (laughs) You're welcome in advance. (laughs) Okay, so, did you hear about the archaeologist caught napping on the job? No. Apparently, she was stoned. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) That implies she's dead, though, as well. Could also be a geologist. (laughs) For background, and also if you have to explain a joke, it's not very good, but for background, if you don't know... (laughs) Napping or flint napping, K N A P P I N G, is making stone tools. Oh, uh, yep, yep, yeah. There's, oh, there's layers to that joke. Mm-hmm. Wow, there is. That, that was worth the explain. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, that's your joke for the day. And Doodaloo. you should add a little like jingle, yes. Oh, jingle, <laughs> yeah, Jillian's joke of the day. Descending into chaos rapidly. So, yeah, and we didn't haven't said what our podcast is about. So, we decided that following up with our awesome interview with Dr. Kimberly Williams, which was a blast, check it out, episode 14, if you haven't listened already. Heck yes, while as a prelude to this one, although not necessarily, it's, they also stand alone, they're complimentary. <laughs> yes. Beautiful. So following up on that, we wanted to talk a little bit about sex work in the Wild West, baby. (laughs) Another jingle moment. (laughs) Yes. It actually goes really well with our uh, theme song. It actually does, yes. spaghetti western theme song. (laughs) Spaghetti western. We're finally talking about what we were meant to be talking about. (laughs) We are. It's It's come full circle. (laughs) Seven minutes in, recording. Yes, nice. Um, (laughs) Yeah, so we're going to be talking about sex work in the Wild West because... I mean, I, you know, don't know about this in a real way. Like, you obviously know about brothels, and it's in, I think, probably every video game that's set in the Wild West. But do we actually know about what sex work was like? I didn't, but now I do, and I'm excited to share it with you all. There, I'm excited to learn. We've got some fun facts for, yeah, sex work. I think we should talk a little bit about the wording of sex work and why Mm -hmm. we are using sex work and not, like, prostitution, for example. Mm -hmm. So sex work, as defined by Cheryl Overs in 2002 for the World Health Organization, is the provision of sexual services for money or goods. And so why not use prostitution instead? So prostitution has connotations of criminality and immorality, whereas sex work recognizes that it is, in fact, work that people are doing and rightfully getting paid for. And so there are, unfortunately, currently, and in the past too, many people that are forced into sex work, but there are also many people that choose to do this work and want to be respected and treated fairly as they should be. And a very common thing in the sex work 
like rights movement is to just say sex work is work and it's important to note this and to be wary of the binary that can exist between people forced into it and people that choose to do it but there are many advocates that argue that sex work cannot be separated from exploitation but if you speak to many sex workers they do not like this narrative as it devalues them and their work and that's so that's just something to keep in mind throughout this episode Um, and that's also why we're choosing to use sex work instead of prostitution although that was way more commonly used during the time that we are talking about Mm -hmm. very interesting I was just very recently in Dawson City in the Yukon too, so I'm really feeling this whole gold rush vibe, wild, wild west. You know, it's really a city trapped in history and really preserving that whole period of time. So now I've really got that mindset going of what was the wild west like? So I'm excited to delve into a very sort of niche aspect of that time and place in history. I think it's going to be really cool. Yeah. But we, as we will also learn, not so niche, like perpetuates or it's like True. in all aspects of society back then. I feel like even this whole conversation with the Wild West really seems to be centered around sort of boom towns, Dawson City being one that sort of didn't ever recover. But we all live in Calgary and Calgary is almost like a boom town that never died. It's sort of like a boom mm-hmm. town that just kept going and it's still sort of maybe hanging on now but in its sort of prime and I feel like that whole concept of sex work just like Dr. Williams was talking about really perpetuates itself into sort of the culture and the narrative of the city and that sort of boomtown mentality and sexuality and cowboys and all that sort of wild quote-unquote sort of what we perceive that fantasy and that narrative to be and it's so it's really interesting i think to be recording this podcast in calgary where that like we're talking about this historic event and period but you're right exactly how it's still perpetuating into today's narrative and even being a dawson like it really is you know even during the pandemic they're still doing showings at diamond tooth gerties where they had the girls coming out very scantily clad it wasn't quite burlesque but you know they're dancing you weren't allowed to like sing along and cheer because you had to like you know try to keep your moistness of your mouth to a limited you can't speak too moistly i guess and singing <laughs> does not allow for that uh but yeah they were still doing their like burlesque shows because it was such an integral part of the community and the tourism and just that's what really helps to describe and sort of conceptual like our ideal and our idea of the wild west is so ingrained in ideas of like brothels and girls and sex it's yeah. really what sold it gold and sex like yeah. well i went to a burlesque show in banff like two three weeks ago it was awesome it was so fun and like one gal literally like her outfit was one of those like old timey ones, you know, where they like pull a thing and it like cinches up and then it has. Oh, yeah. It was amazing. But anyway, also the way that I explain Dawson to people is just Heritage Park, but a full town of that. Yeah. Yeah. People are like, it's like Las Vegas of the North, but it's so different because Las Vegas is, you know, modern and it's literally Las Vegas from 1899. Yeah. It's <laughs> pretty cool. Oh, it's crazy. It's yeah. Cool place. Definitely. Yeah. And so. Lulu, we were going to start with the archaeology of this because that was something that came up in the interview. Yeah. So Kimberly Williams obviously didn't do any archaeology, but because gender and women's studies is very interdisciplinary, you can do gender studies and look at it from an archaeological point of view. So I was just thinking, like, how could you have sex work and archaeology meet? And it's excavations of brothels. (laughs) So I found this article by... Catherine Holder 
spud, spewed. Um, I think it's spewed. And it's called Brothels and Saloons, an Archaeology of Gender in the American West. And she was kind of talking about the methodology of like examining saloons and brothels and what we can learn from it. So basically, the point of this whole research was to look at evolution of gender throughout time. And in doing this, we can look at the function of gender, the roles of different, not only different genders, but different um, positions within your gender, like different classes, uh, and just the generally what the lives were like for people, especially working class people who didn't have records that have been passed down because of their position in, in society. So we, we need archaeology then to fill in those gaps for us, especially with a topic like sex work, which can hold a lot of taboos. It's really hard to have unbiased primary sources. And because of the Victorian and Edwardian or like reform framework, they were put in like a very specific light, either as kind of like the whore or the Madonna kind of thing of, of women. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, so as Kim mentioned, uh, you can find court documents or arrest documents with, yeah. with these women mentioned. And they were also often mentioned in newspaper articles. Mm-hmm. But there's very little primary source material. So we need to figure out where were these women? What were their lives like? And so, yeah. I love what you're saying about, like, archaeology bridging the gap between that narrative of the past that hasn't been documented, like, in the historic record or written text, and then Mm -hmm. archaeology being, like, that gateway into exploring those lives of regular people. Like, that's a really cool avenue. Mm -hmm. It's true. interesting. Yeah. (laughs) I think it's what I really like about historical archaeology is that you still, like, in prehistoric archaeology, it's all we have, but with with the framework of historical archaeology you have that documentation but you still can bolster things up and fill it in and find contradictions through archaeology which is interesting Mm -hmm. so to do that they looked at places like mining camps logging camps and other places where there's lots and lots of men without wives where all those single men yeah (laughs) where the sex work industry was was huge because in a lot of these places you didn't really have much else to do really (laughs) so a lot of these camps are like difficult to do archaeology in though because um they're many of them were not stationary or they weren't lived in for very long so you don't have a buildup of archaeological material and also because a lot of these places didn't really have like quote-unquote laws or courts because it's the wild west it was up to the community to make kind of decisions about what to punish and what not to punish and a lot of them either didn't have newspapers or people wouldn't keep their newspapers um, for these like small towns and so they haven't been passed down to us like to find his records now you mean yeah can. yeah so just a little bit of background on like the difference between saloons and brothels saloons were social hubs they were basically like bars and they served for uh, a place for entertainment for for drinking but they also were a gathering place for strikes there were places to get your news and just hang out so they were basically just a social hub for the town and they have one squeaky floorboard that only squeaks when a stranger walks on it when they're entering the bar. Yeah. And then uh, you can hear a eagle in the <laughs> background. <laughs> yeah. The yeah. swinging <laughs> half doors. Yes. And the tumbleweeds. Yes, of course. Yes, of course. <clears throat> but these places also provided sexual favors. So. Oh, and. Then, 
what's the difference? <laughs> so then what would be the difference between a brothel and a saloon? Thank you, Kelsey. T- tell us, Lulu. <laughs> um, so it's actually harder to define because it's also places, uh, a brothel is also a place where you would go to purchase sexual favors, but they also had a huge culture of alcohol in, in brothels as well. But according to ethnography, as well as first-person accounts, alcohol in both places was the most important commodity. Most people would go to these places for alcohol. But the primary difference between brothels and saloons is is not what happened inside them, but who controlled and ran these establishments. Because saloons were exclusively run by men, but brothels could be run by women. So, Madams are badasses, mm-hmm. honestly. Like, impressive. Yes. So, in this article, they were talking about how women were actually forbidden, either by law or cultural convention, from being inside of saloons. And if you were a woman inside of a saloon, then you would be labeled as a sex worker because only sex workers and, like, women of quote-unquote ill repute would be in establishments like this. Wow. And thus, like, in saloons, women didn't have any control over the material culture. While in brothels, a lot of them were owned, operated, and occupied by women. So it would it would be the place where they're living. And so by looking at the material artifacts in these spaces, we can have an understanding of the difference between these gendered spaces. Anyway, so the article itself, I encourage you to read it. But she compared artifacts in brothels and saloons in different cities across North America. And what she found was brothels had a higher amount of artifacts that could be gendered female, like, specifically. And anyway, it was very interesting. And then at the end, she had this little anecdote where she was describing a court case in Juneau, Alaska in 1903. And she said it sought to establish that a gambling house and saloon was also a body house. He called several witnesses who testified they had seen the male customers smoking, cursing, and leaving their hats on in the presence of women who frequented the saloon. All actions together were sufficient to establish the reputation of the women as prostitutes. To the court and the jury, a woman who tolerated smoking was a prostitute. Ergo, the place was a house of prostitution. So anyway, I just thought this was interesting because... Having any fun, you were labeled a prostitute. (laughs) Yeah, they needed no evidence of actual sexual acts. It was the act of going against what was formally allowed for women and what was acceptable, I guess, that labeled them as such yeah wow anyway i do love archaeology being able to traverse those typically underrepresented narratives so you're getting a different side of the story as compared to just what some you know white man wrote about (laughs) how he felt that a woman or prostitutes like congrats yeah Mm -hmm. no that's very true i think that's really interesting and we were kind of talking about this before lulu it's really interesting how being a sex worker at that time actually offered women a lot of independence that they wouldn't mm-hmm. have had otherwise. And it's interesting how brothels are, like, especially in archaeology, a living testament of that, too. Mm-hmm. Where you're finding proof of gendered material culture as well in these spaces that sort of, like, lends itself to that idea as well. Which is, it's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely, well, it's like the oldest occupation, right? So a lot of women working, doing what they had to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh yeah, I was just gonna say there was one like news brief article that I did come across that was a little bit touching on the subject of archaeology and material culture in the Old West. It has, of course, a very sensationalized title called "Shooting Up in the Old West," but just because we were talking, uh, the whole idea of 
drinking and an altered state of mind, of course, in this, uh, in the Old West at this period of time. Um, this is actually about how a syringe was found. A glass hypodermic syringe was found under what was believed to be a brothel in a boomtown. And it's pretty, so it was found in a neighborhood between West Virginia City, or Virginia City's Chinatown and the Red Lake District, occupied in about the 1870s. And the records of the occupation of the house are a little bit sketchy, but basically they ended up doing this like DNA analysis on the syringe. Chemical analyses showed it was used for morphine and that actually four different individuals had used it based on the residue. And because it was a really dry climate, they were able to test that it was morphine inside of it. And they were able to actually pull DNA off of it. And four people, both men and women, were using the syringe. So, of course, it got sensationalized that, oh, people were, like, shooting up and doing morphine and drinking in these brothels and all these boom towns. It was just a wild, crazy place of sex and drugs and rock and roll, not yet, but, you know, lots of debauchery. And uh, later someone theorized that it was more likely a scenario that it was perhaps a doctor who would maybe work in the house and then maybe had used the syringe to treat multiple t- patients. But again, we don't really necessarily know in that narrative exactly. We can do the DNA t- tests, we can do the chemical analyses, but we don't exactly know the history of how that syringe came to be placed under that floorboard and then excavated many years later. So That's very true. maybe the red light district does have a more deep history than we previously uh, thought. And some of the does. potential light, yeah, potential light that archaeology can shed on some of these accounts. Yeah, absolutely. Also, medicine at the time was like, you've got ghosts in your blood. Like, I, <laughs> like, they would. Yeah, drink this elixir, it'll make you better. It's cocaine and liquor. Exactly. Like, everybody had syphilis. And also, mm-hmm. like, that was treated with, I think, mercury, which just, just. Not another... a good treatment for syphilis. We are not doctors, but we will tell you that. Don't do that. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> The same article was also talking about how women, it wasn't very accepted for women to drink alcohol unless it was medicinal. Hmm. Um, So a lot of women were drinking alcohol and taking opioids like medicinally. um, Interesting. Also because you're not allowed to complain if you're a woman about anything. So (laughs) they would just be drinking in order to alleviate like period cramps or something because you're not allowed to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean... On the note of drinking as well and like brothels, I read also somewhere that during prohibition times, people would pay at the jukebox, but they were actually paying for alcohol, but so that they wouldn't get caught, like they were paying the jukebox. And then anyway, makes sense. I thought that was very interesting. So sort of to go off what you were talking about, Lulu, and talking about the brothels. So I read an article that focused specifically on Wallace, Idaho, which is a small silver mining town that was established in 1884. And so the underground economy, founded on old West-style brothels and illegal gambling, continued all the way up until 1991. And many community members believe that the outlet for sexual release was essential for mining communities. As you kind of said, like, there's nothing else to do. It was a lot of single men. And many people mentioned that they were never ashamed of them and they needed to be there. And so this article is really interesting because it was looking at sort of the the community thinking about sex work and how it was really integral in this community. And actually, it really kind of shaped the community to an extent as well. The brothels were there all the way from the founding of the town and they managed to adapt 
to and flourished throughout many major reform periods where other businesses struggled and failed. The author, who is Heather Lee Branchtetter, was looking at why that might be. And Heather Lee Branchtetter surmised that it was due to the brothel managers, who are often called madams, their impressive adaptability and through their use of harnessing gossip and small talk, which allowed them to intelligently knit their profession into the fabric of the town's cultural identity. And you can maybe speak to this a little bit, Kelsey. It was kind of what you were mentioning about Dawson, where, you know, even now there's people dressing up in, like, burlesque-style outfits. Um, like, it's just very there's much... still, like, no women in the town. Yeah. Erin <laughs> got... My sister got a marriage proposal when she was up there, because I think... He just hadn't seen a pretty girl in so long. He was like, stay wow. up here forever, be my wife. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. Mining towns, baby. <laughs> and, so, so, and so what she was saying, French Tedder, is that gossip can be a very strong tool that serves many purposes, like entertainment, manipulation, self-preservation, a craving for drama. That's all we're really doing is just gossiping, but publicly, about archaeology and anthropology. Um, 100%, yeah. <laughs> or a desire to understand friends, neighbors, and the general social condition of humanity. And so brothels in Wallace <laughs> were illegal, yet accepted, and it was like a very well-known public secret. It was appealing as a tangible connection to a libertarian Wild West past. And it gave upright members of society an excuse to swap stories in hushed tones about otherwise taboo topics, as you were sort of saying, Lulu. And most everyone the author interviewed mentioned that the houses, quote, offered relief for single minors and kept local women from getting raped end quote. Harsh wording there, excuse me. And quote, the women were checked out by doctors, end quote. And people also liked the fact that it was in a brothel and not out on the streets. And they mentioned that, quote, the houses gave so much back to the community, end quote. So it really was very integral to this town. And it was seen as Mm -hmm. a tourist attraction, a source of income for the community, and a real unifying force. And so madams, the brothel managers, managed to change the vocabulary and beliefs about the town, promoting various talking points, such as the ones quoted above. You were, you were mentioning newspaper articles, and, and there are actually articles that the author found from this time where brothel managers were interviewed, and they were also seen to have like really spread this narrative that was seen, like, was reiterated by community members even to the mm-hmm. time that this article was written, you know? And so they really managed to use that gossip in a very efficient way. Yeah. Impressive, honestly. That's, so, that's interesting also because they were talking about the biases that c- could be present in newspapers and how even when being interviewed, um, a sex worker would want to present herself in a certain way. So it mm-hmm. might not reflect, like the condition or the attitude that she actually had towards whatever she was doing because she needed to advertise herself like in a very specifically um kind of fun adventurous interesting way yeah Yeah, it was very like curated so Mm -hmm. to speak yeah and so another thing that was talked about in this article is that in wallace the brothels were confined to the east side of town they were like very much in one specific area and during World War One, worries about venereal diseases for soldiers really spread. And then after the social and moral hygiene campaign that was 
that was spread. However, the symbi- symbiosis between brothels and the local government actually intensified, and sex work was institutionalized, and it was connected to cleanliness and regulation, and a health officer was appointed to that area to regulate the district, assessing licensing fees and further increasing sex workers' entanglement with the economy. And women would now officially undergo health examination. <laughs> which is good. And then mm-hmm. after World War II, another thing that we would see just, you know, again with sex work, like women seeking wages comparable to what they had made working in wartime industries, they often turned or returned to sex work. And this was often in mining and logging camps. And yeah, it's just really interesting how this has really continued. And especially in this one town, like it was there all the way until 1991. This, this, it was just a part of their community and an integral aspect of their industry and such a absolutely. practice that really, yeah. An economy and everything. That. And then I found another, it was a book actually, and it was talking about many sex workers of the Wild West. And it was like the way that they were talked about was like as being like really strong and sharp witted. And so, for example, in Chicago, there was Lizzie Hall, who was a strong, enterprising black woman. And then there was Carmen, who was described as a full blossomed Spanish rose who would just as soon stick a stiletto into your gizzard. As stand at the bar and have a drink with you, which I just love. I want to be de- <laughs> described that way. <laughs> it's amazing. And then there is also Josephine Airy, who couldn't read, but had an incredible aptitude for math and was, quote, physically as tough as a professional wrestler, end quote. So just like there's some really strong characters that were working in sex work and i also thought just to tie this in a lot of people have heard of calamity jane right who is the you know swashbuckling gal who dressed as a man and there's a lot of her life is rumor but she was born martha jane canary and her parents both died within a year of each other and then at the age of 12 she was left to take care of herself and her five siblings and then she she got into sex work and she saw this as a way to not be bound to one husband and forced to do housework and could instead choose like who she had sex with and how she spent her days. And it really just offered, and I don't want to like romanticize sex work even at that time because it can still be really, you know, terrible and hard work and morphine and unwanted babies and all this sort of stuff, and syphilis. However... It did tend to be the way that a lot of women could live independently. Yeah. I like what you were saying about how, like, empowering it was for women to, and how some of them even turned afterwards back to or to prostitution as a way of earning their pre-war and war incomes, as you were saying. And, yeah, I read on an article on The Modern that prices for a romp in the sheets could range anywhere from 25 cents to a dollar. So at that point in time, like, that's a good amount of money. So you could actually support yourself financially by doing this job. But of course it was, it was a lot of work and it was really physically taxing job. And yeah, you got to worry about the health and safety. So I'm happy to hear what you said about at least a doctor being concerned for the women. Because yeah, contraception, like in the late 1800s could be deadly. Like childbirth was a dangerous process. Never mind trying to, you know, manage contraception or have an abortion in the late 1800s. Like women were at the time, it said even resorting to ingesting poisonous abortifacients 
which would hopefully induce a miscarriage. But lots of times as they were ingesting poison, it did not end up going well. Wow. So like you were, it was a lot of, a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, well, I, I was looking at ugh. that too. Like birth control for the time. Oof. Not barely anything. Uh, not pleasant. No. A lot of abortions, unwanted pregnancies, uh, douching was often used with various substances such as alum, quinine. Quinine, is that the right pronunciation? Lemon juice, baking soda. Oof. And it's probably because I had read in this article also from The Modern that sometimes certain sexual acts were considered a little too exotic and... Uh, Something like oral sex or fellatio was not really practiced back then, as it was considered to be, quote unquote, too French. Uh, I also wonder, like, just, yeah, so that was not really a practice at the time. It wasn't really a thing that people did. Also, everyone was dirty back then. I was thinking that. Yeah, you know, like, I wonder if they thought it was too French or, like, how nasty. Because, like, the hygiene practices at that point, like, it is, would not have been. was actually bathing regularly enough oh gosh yeah 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 not i just got back from staying for five weeks in a dry cabin in the yukon with no running water we had like thankfully an outdoor shower that was set up attached to a garden hose with a like spaghetti strainer (laughs) but like getting the being like every couple days like oh i gotta go outside and face the cold water and shower and i you know i do it but I could see after a while that becoming really, yeah, yeah, hygiene practices in the Yukon in the late 1800s. I could see why no one was, uh, yeah, yeah, totally understandable why those acts were (laughs) not uh, happening. Very fascinating. Mm -hmm. Um, I also, yeah, this article also talked a little bit about, because there was so many single men, obviously, in these towns, love is love. And counter to some of our, like, thoughts on the old wests and brothels and the availability of women like sometimes in these places like there were no women and sometimes homosexuality was practiced pretty frequently and actually wasn't considered as taboo then as it is today so same-sex relationships among a lot of the men in the quote-unquote old west was pretty normalized relatively at the time so when women were in scarce supply let's say the brothels were all closed it was, of course, considered only natural for men to ease their urges with other men and engage in sexual activities with each other. And they even uh, sometimes coupled into unions called bachelor marriages, where two men would be together. And that was just, they were in a bachelor marriage with each other. That was what they did. So, you know, the women were working hard. And sometimes when they weren't around, or even if they were, yeah, men would be with each other. Well, and that brings up, like, this is a much larger discussion, but that brings up a lot of the anthropology about, like, queerness and gayness and, like, you know, that's why you want to maybe talk about, like, men having sex with men versus, like, because sometimes it's literally just situational. And if you ask those men if they were gay, they probably wouldn't have said yes. But, Mm -hmm. and, like, there's even... when there's no woman around. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And there's even, have you ever heard about how ship captains can marry people? Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. And then, but then there's certain rules in place for, and it was very common for people on ships, men on ships to, you know, be coupled or get married or whatever, Hmm. because that's who was there. And then there's even certain rules about, like, I think the ship captain can marry people, but then there's mm-hmm. a special rule for if the ship captain wants to marry the, f- what is it, 
first mate or something. Mm-hmm. There's like oh. other rules about that. It's very interesting. Someone has to marry them. I remember yeah. like yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Right, right, right. But there's, like, specific rules designated for this because it happens so often. Fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating how that all ties in. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any more archaeology facts for us, Lulu? That is what I had. I also have another, like, <laughs> little quote. Yeah, again, in this, ar- ar- in this article, she uses prostitutes. But, um, so she says, The lives of prostitutes, as revealed by newspaper articles, magistrate records reminiscences, biographies, and folklore often tell more about the attitudes of those recording the historic documents than about the prostitutes themselves. So I thought that was interesting. Um, that, that is very interesting. Oh, also to do with the archaeology. The way she had divided the artifacts was by just general items, like it could be a man's or a woman's, um, items that were specific to women, such as like women's buttons, clothing, hair accessories specific accessories specific to women and then men's items so like buttons that were specific to men etc and in the brothels that there was a higher ratio of items associated with women but it was even higher than the items associated with men inside saloons um interesting so even though sometimes women were like banned from them right unless they were quote-unquote prostitutes yeah so i think because women didn't live in saloons and men usually didn't live in saloons either um there was one case she was talking about where the owner of the saloon lived in the upstairs of the saloon but only when his wife wasn't in town anyway so i think that's that was her explanation for the high amount of uh female items in brothels that they actually lived there anyway i thought that was interesting makes sense this whole time, cool. like, throughout this whole thing, the only thing I can think of is, like, Red Dead Redemption 2. I don't know if either of you have played that video game. I haven't but played it. But it's, like, like, Old West style, and it's just this guy whose name I always forget. John somebody. Anyway, but just, like, Smith. riding through these old towns. And there's, like, saloons. I don't think there's any brothels. Mm. But Historically in saloons- inaccurate. Exactly. That was like Lil Nas X's inspiration for Old Town Road, right? Maybe. I, it's a very popular oh, Red Dead game. Dead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Dead Redemption I too. think so. <laughs> it's funny how, yeah, like those stereotypes were like the archetype of like that period of time is so like sensationalized in mm-hmm. our like current cultural narrative. Yeah. Oh, well, I just think of yeah. like uh, Westworld. Are you guys That's not? what... Yeah, this article was talking about it. The success of Westworld is an indication of how people tended to have a thing for America's wild weather, wild west, and the lawless spirit and intrigue that the milieu of America's frontier makes so appealing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it was a huge thing. Like even so, at the time, like in Germany, people were found it sensational. Like the wild west. Mm-hmm. It was the even... whole lustrous, the poetry written about gold and men. I have like, yeah, pictures of the Robert Service poems and all that. Yeah. Yeah. There's even, okay, I have a fun fact for you guys uh, okay. connecting Love again it. the Wild West and Gold Rush to our modern day. Did you know? I'm not sure if you've heard this before on any other podcast, but I found it pretty interesting that Donald Trump's grandfather actually made his riches because of a brothel that he opened in Canada's Yukon during the gold rush in the late 1800s. 
Interesting. I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. Right? Yeah. So I had heard this on, I think, a few other podcasts, and I read a bit more into it. But basically, yeah. So Donald Trump's grandfather, Frederick Trump, he immigrated to North America. We'll bleep out his name later. It's fine. Yeah. (laughs) Do it. So yeah, anyways. the Yeah, he entered Canada across the Chilkoot Trail. So he basically boarded a ship, went up to Alaska, and had to walk across the mountain ranges on the Chilkoot Trail like every other gold miner did in 1898. So he had read when he was living in New York a headline that read, gold, 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 gold struck in Canada's Yukon. So him with like how many thousands of other men went up there and was like, I'm going to strike gold. So he went across the Chilkoot Trail. A lot of, it was a treacherous trail. Like you're going over like the rocky freaking mountains on foot or with a horse. Like, it's crazy. Horses were just dying left, right, and center on this trail. So what he ended up doing on this journey is he started a cookhouse and cooked the roadkill that other people had died and started selling it to, like, the hungry travelers that were en route. So he, that was his, like, first thing he did as soon as he got to the Yukon. Sorry, roadkill... Being like the dead horses and the dead dogs and stuff that would die along the trail, he would then take their bodies, cook it, and then sell it to the other travelers. Wow. Yeah. So that's how he, what he was doing, basically, going across the Chilkoot Trail, entering the Yukon. He got to the Yukon. Basically, he's realizing that, you know, not a lot of people are striking gold. Not sure what he's going to do. So he goes to Bennett Lake, which is actually technically northern BC, and he opens his first... Uh, restaurant called the Arctic Restaurant and Hotel. So he opens that up and it is, of course, a restaurant, hotel and brothel. So he offered women and rooms. They even had scales in the rooms where men could weigh their gold and then pay the women directly with that for their services. The women of the night were called sporting ladies. So there's actually like like newspaper advertisements and hotel brochures and such that he was printing and running that's like commented on how much for a sporting lady with a room for a night how much the meals were like they were just advertised like any other service or good at this establishment so he was making lots of good money things were going really well at Bennett Lake then in 1901 the Royal Canadian Mounted Police the Mounties as we call them wanted to banish prostitution in order to help combat some of the gambling and liquor consumption that was kind of pretty rampant in the area so realizing this Frederick Trump then Abandoned his shop in Bennett Lake and rebuilt it in Whitehorse, Yukon. So in Whitehorse, because the laws were slightly different. And then he, yeah, continued his Arctic hotel and restaurant. You can still today in Whitehorse, it's like memorialized with a little sign, like the foundation of Trump's riches. You can still go see, like, it's a rebuilding, obviously, but same kind of replica of Trump's grandfather's brothel that he ran And he ran it until he left, basically, when he started seeing that, you know, people weren't making a lot of money with gold. He went back to America. They thought he was a draft dodger because of his timing of him leaving. So he ended up being deported. But Trump made his fortune on the backs of sex workers in Canada's north. And I just think that is a fascinating little tidbit of history to uh, tie in here. It really is. We can see how he, who shall not be named, he got it. He, owes his fortune to sex workers yeah, and he, their labor. For him taking advantage of women, that's historically. Yeah. Just in his family. Wow. That's. There you go. So interesting mm. and terrible. Wow. Yeah. So archaeologically, you can still fly up to Bennett Lake and see like the archaeological remains of 
Lake Bennett Lake and the brothels. There's like old bottles and all sort of stuff. Um, they're trying to turn it into like more of a tourist attraction, which I guess would like be the only good thing to kind of help the community in modern times if they can get more mo- money guess. invested in their economy. But yeah, wow, yeah. Mm, I just wow. thought that was a pretty interesting little gold rush sex work tie-in to the modern day upcoming U.S. presidential election 2020. Oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's a whole other thing. My goodness. Um, yeah, no, that is that's a really interesting fact. No, seriously, I sex work is so interesting, and the Wild West is a very interesting time. It's baffling to me, honestly, and you know, super colonial. We didn't really get into that, but that's obviously a part of this. But that's the interesting thing about I think Kimberly Williams' work is that she focuses specifically on like the colonial women who were working as sex workers and we are very lucky to be doing one of her walking tours on saturday i'm very excited Yay! i guess first field trip <laughs> yes um i guess pertaining to people field trip <laughs> and i think this is the first time we're gonna like see each other like be together <laughs> in, per- in person the three in of person us? Yeah. yeah i feel like that, that is also we will true. be masked up and following all social distance physically distancing protocols as we all should be because we're trying to flatten the curve baby so that we can do normal wear things yes wear your mask wear your yeah. mask i think that's a good way to yeah hygiene baby wear your mask <laughs> hygiene <laughs> bringing it all back <laughs> Um, and bidet company sponsorship <laughs> let's get to it and keep your genitals clean so <laughs> and thanks for tuning in see you next week we've lost Jalulu the thread and Kelsey talk about <laughs> we've lost the thread of this this podcast completely I don't know <laughs> where are we <laughs> but yeah so that is our pretty short we kept it fairly short. Pretty short mm-hmm. episode on sex work in the old Wild West. Really, again, thank you, Dr. Kimberly Williams, and all of our lovely interview guests that we had over the past couple of weeks. Um, There'll was, be more to come. Yes, there will be more to come, and we're very excited about it. But it has been such a blast, all of these interviews. And it was such a good way to spend the summer, I, the end of the summer, now that we're mm-hmm. going into fall. Good first week back at school, if anyone's back at school also. And I think we're going to do something fall-related for our next episode. We haven't decided. Who knows? Something. Something will happen. Something will happen. We'll do We'll do Aww. an episode. It'll happen. It'll be a surprise for you all. And I'll be back with Jokes with Jill. <laughs> Maybe I'll have a she jingle. She just did even. like a little rainbow. <laughs> just <laughs> jazz hands situation. <laughs> uh, jazz hands. Yeah. Anyway, I don't know how to end this now. We're a mess. Obviously. So that's it. We'll have all of the references and links for this episode and every episode up on our website, pertainingtopeople.com. You can always send us messages, comments, questions concerns, facts, sponsorships for bidet companies to pertaining to people at gmail.com. We have our Instagram at pertaining to people and our Twitter at p2peoplepod. And I think that's everything. I think that's everything as well. (laughs) We did it. We got through it. Yay. We're a mess today. This is a really fun one though. It was a lot of fun. It was. Yeah. I learned a lot. It was good. Yeah, it's great. Thank you for listening, everybody. We'll see you next week for an episode. <laughs> <Peace>. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.